Welcome to Season 6 of the Food for Your Soul podcast, where we apply the Word of God to the hearts of men and women to stoke the fires of your delight in Christ. This season of the podcast is devoted to the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches His people about life in the Kingdom of God. Question is about 1 Corinthians 5 7. Get rid of the old yeast in order that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival. Not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. And sometimes people have pointed to this verse and say, We should keep, be keeping the Passover festival. We should actually carry out the Passover festival because it says, Let us keep the festival. However, I think what this passage is saying is it's not saying let us keep the Passover festival, but let us keep what Christ transformed the Passover festival to be, and that is the communion festival. So I think you're exactly right. This is talking about communion, and that's why we use unleavened bread and everything in the communion, because it's based on the Passover. But the Passover was a picture pointed to communion, and now we don't need the we don't need Passover anymore. Well, when Jesus said, This is my body, at the Passover meal Jesus took the the food from that meal and said, "This is my body now." It's yeah, he transformed it that night before he died. Right up until that night, Passover Passover was in force, one hundred percent. And then that night, Jesus said, "You know this thing that used to represent one thing it doesn't represent that anymore. Now it represents my body. And this cup used to represent something. It doesn't represent that anymore. It represents my blood now. And this is and he said, the blood of what." The new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. This is a new arrangement. I'm, everything's changing here. So that's what happened to the festival. Yes, the, the whole purpose of the temple was to be a, a, a dwelling place for God that the people could approach God in worship. And in that part of that structure, and like we just preach and preach and preach on all the symbolism in there, but one of the symbols was that curtain that blocked off the actual holy place. The, the, the Greek word is neos. When you see the word temple in the New Testament, sometimes it's neos and sometimes it's heiron. Heiron refers to the whole temple complex, all the courts and everything. Neos refers to that building, the holy place, where you couldn't go in. Because that's the dwelling place of God. When the Bible says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, it's not heiron, it's neos. We are the holy place, the actual dwelling place of God. And... So that that curtain being ripped in half was saying now there is access to God through Christ. And so yeah, he's the he's the fulfillment of the temple, he's the fulfillment of that whole system, he's the fulfillment of that curtain. Yeah, God makes all these promises uh, in the Bible, hundreds and hundreds of promises, and none of them you can't claim any of them except for the ones for that promise judgment. Until you know Christ, so as an unbeliever, you can't unbelievers can't just flip open their Bible and see a promise. Oh, I'm your refuge and your high tower, and I'll protect you. I'll provide for you, and say, Oh, good, God promises. No, He doesn't promise that to you. Those promises are only accessible through Christ, through faith in Christ. You don't know Christ, you don't get the promises. But if you know Christ, absolutely every single promise from page one to the last page is yes and amen in Christ. Now, the yes and amen means 
in that context of that passage, the yes, Paul is saying, you know, we didn't come and say yes and then no and then yes and then no. And Our yes was yes. And the idea was that uh, of not vacillating. So when it says all the promises are yes in Christ, it means yes, yes, like the yes that doesn't ever turn into a no. And amen, which is a declaration of joy in the, in the truthfulness and the certainty of a promise. And so that's the basis for how we live our whole lives because we live by faith. So all of our righteousness is by faith. Faith in what? Faith in what God promised. Trusting those. So that's how you get that's how you overcome that sin in your life that you're struggling to overcome. You find promises that have to do with that and you rest in those and and focus on those and that's what God gives you power. Faith in the promises is the way we live our lives. And so so yeah, that is a that's a fantastic. I love that song, Yes and Amen. What we sing, and we just he says yes and amen over and over, but that's great. Usually, I don't like repetitive songs, but that one's worth repeating. Uh, Harry, the question: Do those promises apply to the elect, the elect before they believe? Like God knows you're going to be saved, and so when you think a lot about election, our human intuition would just tend to think, well. God knows you're going to eventually be saved. He's got it all planned. He knows the day it's going to happen. If there's no question it's going to happen, it's predestined. And so, and for all intents and purposes, you're practically saved already. I mean, you might as well think of you. I mean, you're pretty much, I think a lot of, of more extreme Calvinists think in terms of, you're pretty much on your way to heaven, even before your conversion. You're pretty much, because God knows, it's just a formality, really, the conversion, because God knows it's going to happen. The problem with it, thinking that way, I mean, logic might dictate that, but Scripture goes against it. Scripture says, as for you, the elect, people who are already saved now, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live in the way that you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and doing the will of the flesh and the mind. And like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. Before you were saved, you were not, for all intents and purposes, on your way to heaven. You were en route to hell. And so was I. All of us were. And we were rescued from that. So, so no. Even the elect, the promises don't, they're not... In, do not apply until you're born again. In fact, Scripture doesn't even refer to you as the elect until after you're born again, which is a fascinating thing. And if you want a detailed study on that, I wrote a paper on, on that, that very thing. Andrew? Right, yeah, good point. So, so in, in Timothy, you got a couple of places where he pulls uh, civil laws out, like the law about you don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and, and, you, don't, and, and you have to have two or three witnesses in an accusation. Things like that were part of the civil code. And he seems like, well, they're still in place today. Remember when I told you that none of those laws were written to us, but all of them were written for us, and the principles taught by those laws are in effect forever, and they're just as applicable to us today as they ever were. And those are two examples of that principle. That's that's the point I was making. It wouldn't be something where there would be a legal penalty if you actually muzzled an ox, an actual ox, while it was trading out some grain. There's no legal, civil penalty connected with that now that's required by Scripture. However, that principle, that that, that passage, the fact that God made that law teaches us a principle. And the principle it teaches us is, basically, that worker is worthy of his higher principle. 
you should allow a worker to have some kind of recompense for what he's doing. And for that reason, Paul applies that principle to paying a pastor. So that's why you all pay me a salary is because of that verse and that principle that comes right out of the civil law. So that's, that's a good example. The other one, the same thing, two or three witnesses. That was part of their legal code, but now in church discipline, that same principle, the principle is, look, don't just go by the word of one person. If there's going to be an accusation, you don't run someone out of the church based on one person making an accusation. You follow that basic principle of protection. Make sure that the thing is true, and the way you make sure the thing is true is by witnesses. And so that principle still applies. Yeah, we should apply the principles of every single thing in the whole Testament to everything we're doing, including lawmaking, if we're involved in lawmaking. Yeah, absolutely. I thought there might be some questions about some things that I mentioned designed to excite questions, and it didn't, so I'm going to go ahead and just answer them anyway, even though you didn't ask them. (laughs) Because uh, you might, probably somebody's going to wonder about them, and I want to get to them. I mentioned the tithe and the Sabbath as shadows. They're gone. And I thought some people might object to that, because... There are a lot of people today that believe that the tithe is still binding on us today, the tithe rules, and the Sabbath rules as well. I preached in a church once where they were really strong on the they were uh, I got in a lot real trouble when I first moved there, and they somebody saw me mowing my yard on a Sunday afternoon, and uh, the pastor doesn't mow his yard on Sunday afternoon in Hillsdale, Oklahoma. He don't do anything on Sunday afternoon. I mean, they were real strict on the Sabbath resting, except they had scooted it over a day over to Sunday instead of Saturday. But I, I really believe that those are, I mean, they're mentioned specifically in that Colossians 2 passage as shadows. Now, the, the giving, uh, I think 10% is a great amount to give. My own personal practice is that I give 10% to the church general fund and then another 5% to missions and benevolence. And so we get 15%. The reason we came up with those numbers is because of the same thing Andrew was talking about. You use wisdom based on the fact that in the Old Testament, it took about 10% of everybody's income to keep the priests and the temple running. And so it stands to reason that now it would take about the same percentage of everyone's income to keep the pastoral staff and the church running. So I use that as a baseline. But it's not, a, it's not that civil law is not applicable to where all those... And there were more than just tithe, the one tithe. There's all kinds of different fees and taxes and stuff that they paid. And we don't, we, we, we just pull the tithe and forget about the rest because we can't afford the rest of those. But, um, you know, either they're applicable or they're not. I think that they're, the principles are all applicable, but the, the rule itself is not binding. And so now what the thing that came across in the New Testament is the free will offering. And so we give what's in our heart to give. That's the tithe. And then the, what's the other one I said? Oh, the Sabbath. There's nothing that makes, in the Bible, that there is some precedent in Scripture for moving the day of worship, the day of corporate worship, from Saturday to Sunday, because Sunday is the first day of the week when, when Jesus rose from the dead, and that's worth celebrating. That's more worth celebrating than the creation rest. And so, um, so in, the, in the early church, they celebrated the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. And so we follow that example, and we worship on the first day of the week. But honestly, it wouldn't matter if we had church on a Wednesday or Tuesday or whatever uh, necessarily, because Scripture says some people think of all days as being the same, and some people think of one day being more holy than the rest. And 
we should get along because these are not big differences. And really, it's, Scripture says it's the strong, the, the, the strong brothers that understand that every day is the same. Every day is the holy day now. And so, um, so you know, there's nothing special. Uh, but there's some, there's some wisdom in taking a rest when you're tired, you know. And so we learn that. But uh, uh, anyway, those are, I just figured I should get that out there since I didn't say it in my sermon. Gabe? Yeah, I believe the Sabbath day, I believe that Jesus' indication was the Sabbath day is, if you look, if you study Hebrews 4, what it says about the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest, and you get really confused reading that chapter because it seems like, half the time it seems like it's referring to now is our Sabbath day. Uh, the, and then it, sometimes it seems like heaven, it's talking about heaven. And it sort of goes back and forth. And I think the Sabbath rest, the rest that the Sabbath day pointed to was a twofold thing. One of them is the rest that we now have in Christ when he says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and, and I will give you rest. As soon as he said that word rest, immediately all the Jews would think Sabbath rest. And he's saying, I'm, gonna, I'm the provider of that rest now. And then all, the ultimate rest comes in heaven. And so uh, the Sabbath day, it's not Saturday, and it's not Sunday. The new Sabbath day is the day you became a Christian. That's when you entered into your rest. The rest from striving and working to generate your own righteousness. Uh, and the ultimate rest will come in heaven. So that's a great point. Ed, were you about to say something? I believe they are. I believe that there are promises made to ethnic Israel that will be fulfilled to ethnic Israel in the future. And I think that's taught in, in, in Romans 11. So it says that where it says God's calling is irrevocable in, in his, and so he's going to fulfill those promises. So I think that, I still think that even though there's a lot of promises that God made to Israel that are fulfilled in a partial way now in the church, still there are other promises that will be re, uh, fulfilled to ethnic Israel in the future, in the end time. Now, that's what makes me a dispensationalist. That one fact, that's the definition of a dispensationalist, someone who believes that, that there's still a future plan for ethnic Israel. Now, our covenant theologian friends will say that um, all of the promises made to ethnic Israel are fulfilled spiritually in the church, and God no longer deals with the people based on, based on ethnicity anymore, but now it's based on a spiritual factor of being in Christ, and therefore we should look, look at all those promises as being fulfilled one way or another in the church and not no future plan for ethnic Israel. And so that's kind of the... Right. So that is another complexity in the whole thing, is the fact that even in Old Testament times you have Israel. Sometimes Israel means all of ethnic Israel, and sometimes Israel means just the true remnant that really believes. And if you think of that as a real Israel, then that carries over to now, the true remnant that really believes that actually has father, Abraham as their father, not only ethnically, but in faith. Thank you for listening. We pray that in this series, your life will be transformed by the soaring ethics, deep insights, and glorious promises of the Sermon on the Mount. We are crowdfunded ministry, so if you would like this podcast to continue, please consider supporting us with a tax-deductible gift. Just go to treasuringgod.com and click on Give. Until next time, rejoice in the Lord always and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.